Welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line, talking to all the movers and shakers and film and television makers, be it directors, writers, cinematographers, costume designers, production designers, sound gurus, editors, um, you name it, we talk to them. Uh, And of course... You can find me live every Monday right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. After Monday's show, this show then becomes, it's available on BehindTheLensOnline.net. It's it's available on Stitcher, on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, and a bunch of other places that you can find it generally by Tuesday morning. Um depending on how tired I am when I get home on Monday night to do the uploading. (laughs) And of course, our wonderful engineer Pam does archives it on the AdrenalineRadio.com site as well. But if you can't wait from, from one week to the next, you can find more movie reviews and interviews and trailers and all kinds of good stuff at BehindTheLensOnline.net and in other print and online publications in the U.S. and abroad 24-7. So, and especially now that we're in award season, we've got a lot of awards interviews coming up. Uh, I'm in the midst of doing quite a few of them right now. Uh, for And some, I have to tell you, are potential Oscar, Oscar nominees. Lauren Shear, cinematographer of Joker. Um, is one of them. And of course, as, as they pop up, we'll be bringing you excerpts of them here on the show, and then you'll find them, uh, the complete interviews. And some of them are actually going to be the actual audio interview that I'm going to post on BehindTheLensOnline.net, just because I want you to hear, um, as I've been doing the past few years here on the, on the live show every week, rather than cut things up into clips. I love for you to hear the conversation with the talent whom we're speaking with, whom we're interviewing. Because as all of you know by now, uh, everything I do is pretty much a conversation. Uh, No questions are written. I listen and go with the flow. So, of course, I do see the film and do a lot of prep work beforehand. Today, I'm very excited today with our guests who are calling in, Micah Hauptman is going to be with us. It has been almost four years to the day since Micah was with us uh, uh, previously. And he's going to be here today talking with us about the Riot Act. You will remember that last week, writer-director Devin Parks was with us talking the Riot Act. Um, So I'm very excited now to have Micah with us um, to talk about his role in the film. And also, a man I have been waiting 38, 39 years to interview Brett Cullen. Brett Cullen is veteran actor. Brett Cullen is with us. And anyone that saw Joker, you know Brett Cullen plays Thomas Wayne in Joker. Uh, So we'll be talking to him about that as well as this incredible performance that he gives in the Riot Act. So Micah and Brett will be joining us uh, shortly in the show. Uh, But You know, the joke's on us this weekend. The big talk uh, building up for weeks and weeks has been Joker. Is it going to be a bomb? Will it be a bust? Or will it be brilliant? 
um, while reviews are divided, opinions are divided, one thing is <laughs> there is no division on or divisiveness. The joke's on us because Joker opened to 234 million worldwide this weekend. Uh, it is the biggest October opening for a film ever. And I do believe it's the biggest DC uh, comics opening. Um, a few other things. Anybody watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream? Because our beloved owner, Nick, loves toys. So he has his little Mevo, Mevos and all kinds of crap. Um, so that the show streams on Facebook if you want to watch. The only thing worthwhile watching is to see the tablescapes that I come up with. And this week, we we are welcoming back my favorite Toy Story character. Forky is front and center to, on our tablescape today because tomorrow, Toy Story 4 is available on Blu-ray and digital. Uh, so I can't encourage you to get that. Pick it up. See it. Download it. Go buy, you know, go buy the Blu-ray because it is truly a spectacular, wonderful film. Uh, and, of course, Forky is my favorite. And later this week, on Friday, of all things, The Lion King is available digitally this Friday. Blu-ray, it will be available on Blu-ray on October 22nd. But this Friday, you can pick up The Lion King. You can watch it digitally as well. And add that to your digital download library. So, before we have Micah and Brett calling in, talking about the Riot Act, we're going to talk a little bit about Lucy in the Sky. It opened on Friday in a limited release, directed by Noah Hawley. Interesting film in that it is based on the tabloid coverage and story of 2007 uh, of NASA astronaut Lisa Nowak. And she attempted the murder of a woman named Kathleen Shipman, who Nowak thought was having an affair with uh, a commander whom she apparently was involved with and or had feelings for. It's a story that was quickly, it came and went very quickly. Uh, the spin doctors for NASA did a great job of uh remediating that and getting rid of that from the mainstream uh, 12 years ago. But now screenwriters Brian Brown and Elliot DiGiuseppe have turned that into a narrative feature. And it's very interesting um, from the standpoint that it really addresses, um, we watch this character, um, in the film, her name is Lucy Cola, played by Natalie Portman. We watch Lucy descend into madness. Um, she's apparently with a hypnotic disassociation that's punctuated by obsessive compulsive manias. Um, it's really interesting the way these emotional gears shift within the character and within the story as we watch essentially this existential crisis and descent into madness the supporting cast john ham who is he his performance is truly one of the one of the two big ones to watch in this film the other one he plays uh, astronaut mark goodwin with whom lucy is having an affair uh and of course she gets jealous when she catches him with another astronaut 
Uh, but a real up-and-comer that I can't speak highly enough about, Pearl Amanda Dixon, she plays uh, Blue Iris, Lucy's niece, and she has come to live with Lucy and her husband, who is played by Dan Stevens in one of the most woefully miscast roles he will ever have in his life. Uh, but Pearl, she is our eyes and our ears. We are essentially seeing, she's observing what her Aunt Lucy is doing. She sees what other people aren't really recognizing. And it's through her eyes that Noah and his cinematographer, Polly Morgan, take us in to the story uh, and what's happening with Lucy. It's a very sad story. Um, but in that sadness, there is a lot of beauty. Uh, it's very interesting in that Noah fluctuates uh, changing aspect ratios. He goes from widescreen and then brings it into a standard screen format and goes back and forth and back and forth, uh, trying to, number one, you know, make us feel the expanse of being an astronaut out in space with nothing but the stars, and it's limitless and endless. And then when Lucy comes back to Earth, the camera comes, the frame closes in into what we're, we're typically used to seeing as a screen format, not a widescreen, but a regular screen, screen format, and to give that closed-in, boxed-in, claustrophobic sensibility she now feels. And on top of that, the camera moves in tighter as we go through the film to create even more claustrophobia as to who Lucy is and what's happening to her. Um, there are There's some beautiful technical work in this film, and I think it is really its strongest suit is Noah's ability, uh, visual uh, abilities in working with his DP Polly. Um, and we've got to be, we got to be on the lookout for Polly because uh, she just finished or is in the process of a quiet place too. So curious to see what happens there. Uh, a lot of nice, nice technical things, uh, aesthetic things like dissolves his transitions. Um, sound design is impeccable, impeccable sound design. Uh, and it really incorporates and brings in the ambient sounds of nature uh, that play strongly into this crisis and this madness that Lucy is, is starts suffering with. So I sat down with Noah for a really insightful, lengthy conversation on pretty much the technical aspects of the film Lucy in the Sky. We'll get started with this. I know we're going to have to interrupt it when Micah calls, but we'll pick it up later. Um, so right now, take a listen to Noah Hawley talking Lucy in the Sky. Talk about an undertaking. Yeah. Wow. What a film to make the leap from television to the big screen. Yeah, you know, a high degree of difficulty in execution and, and honestly probably a high degree of difficulty in, in, in launching because it's a complicated film about an existential crisis and, and it's not, you know, you don't spoon-feed people a happy ending. It's, you know, it's a tragedy on some level, but she comes out of the other side of it and, and you know, I, I think that that's what hopefully makes it something that people can really relate to because it's, you know... You know, there's an inspiration to people's actual suffering and, and redemption that, mm. that, you 
you know, that's, that's important. Talk to me about working with Polly Morgan, your cinematographer, mm -hmm. and how the two of you went about approaching this visually. Because in addition to your, your shifting aspect ratio, you're using some of my favorite things in filmmaking that so many people don't use anymore. You've got superimpositions. You've got dissolves. Yeah. You've got vertical swipes. Uh -huh. You've got side swipes. Yeah. We don't typically see this yeah. anymore. And you have it all put in there. And I have to say, some of your transitions that you do with superimposition as we go right. into the Starry Night mm -hmm. and combat are just yeah. flawless. They're beautiful. Thank you. So I'm curious what you and Polly discussed to develop this visual tonal bandwidth. You know... We, we discussed everything, you know, but I also include my editor in those, in those conversations. You know, I tend to bring the editor in much earlier than anyone else, mm. you know, because the editor sh has to understand the vision for the film. So, right. you know, Regis and Polly and I were talking, you know, he was there for all of prep. Um, because it's essential that, that that vision gets translated, and especially when we're talking about playing with aspect ratios, you know, you want to try some things out. Um, but, you know, transitions are, are, you know, are always very important to me because it's the juxtaposition of the two images mm -hmm. that creates the power, you know. When, when, when John Hamm bowls and the ball becomes the moon and then Natalie pulls up into the moon, you know, you, there's a feeling that's created yeah. by that, you know, that is, that is a bit indefinable and yet has power to it that is greater than one, than mm -hmm. each of those single single images. You know, Polly and I, and also Stefania Sella, our, our production designer, you know, who had done Paolo Sorrentino's movie, she did The Great Beauty, and, and um, you know, the idea of the magic realism, the idea of a subjective film, you know, all through the prep, I... I you know, I kept adding things, elements. The wallpaper element was added while we were prepping the movie. It wasn't in and the I script. And I love the and contrast between the floral and the vertical. Yeah, story. yeah. That is very psychologically telling. Yeah, the idea that 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 the movie is peeling her back to get to that organic, that romantic, that more you know um, looser person that she is. You know, which then led to you know the floral the the light wall with the flowers, you know, of, of them coming to life. And then, you know, we, we were, you know, we'd been shooting our, our space stuff the one day we were going to do one more day of it. And, and I sent an email to Stefania and I said, I need a window. You know what I mean? That looks like her bedroom window so that, you know, I can film the astronaut coming toward us. It's not a suit. It's not a visual effect. It's actually, we, you know, we shot through a, through a window mm -hmm. on a soundstage. Um, because all through the production, I kept seeing these images in my, in my head and, and you have to be able to react to it. But, you know, we did. Polly and I, we talked it all through. You know, I was there because you know, obviously we did a lot of detuning de on the lenses, you know, to, because you you notice there's a sort of focal ring in a lot of in yeah. a lot of it. You know we, we you know and, and vignetting that 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 came naturally from the fact that mm -hmm. you know we were shooting on a on an you know on this 8K sensor and those old lenses actually didn't cover it entirely. Right. And rather than fix that, you know, I loved the effect of it. So you have to be open to the organic process of mm -hmm. of what these machines are doing. And
That's just a taste of my conversation with Noah Hawley talking about Lucy in the Sky. But we're going to shift gears right now because the wonderful Micah Hauptman is joining us. Hi, Micah. Hi, how are you? Well, I am thrilled to be talking to you again. Do you know it has been almost four years to the day since you last called in to Behind the Lens? <laughs> Hasn't really? Yes. Um, we talked, you called uh, back on October 12th in 2015 uh, for the film Bread and Butter, Liz Manischel's film. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, well, it's good to talk to you again. How have you been? I have been fine, and you've been a busy boy. I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you can't keep anyone from Philly down. Come on, you know, we, <laughs> we, have, to, we have to keep working. You know, keep, keep, keep our you know, nose to the grindstone. But I have... Very, very true. What, I, you blew me away with the riot act. I have to tell you, Micah. Um, uh, number, I'm, I'm so in love with this film, but your character of Cyrus Grimes is just fabulous. The nuance that you bring and the facial expressiveness, uh, with the glasses. And then when you have that, that gorgeous coat on, that is the flashiest piece of, of costume anywhere in the film, but it suits what you bring to the character so well. Oh, thank you so much. You know, this this is a de- this film is really a departure for you, for Brett. Um, and this it's rooted, it's based on a true story. It's based on actual history, court files, and then Devin just took it into a what if. You know, a, a, a what if to develop this story. But the foundation comes from history did you did that surprise you did you learn did Devin tell you about that when he hit you up for this he, he I mean it definitely surprised me and and he, he did talk about it sort of midway through the meeting um because it was hard to discern if it was true or not and if it was the root in history um but it was one of the biggest challenges for sure for Devin and I think for all of us to try and make sense out of the story historically and and also reimagine in the way that he did. Um, and one of the sort of one of the greatest things to tackle and doing something like this for all of us. You know, does you know? Here you were filming in these historical places. Every place that you filmed in is listed with the National Historic Registry, uh, so it's all protected. And <laughs> so does that? <laughs> I guess there's there's no spitting on the floor and doing things like that. Um, <laughs> I mean, did that does that impact your performance when you realize that you're actually standing in history like that? I mean, I think definitely. I think in a lot of ways it does. It it, it almost does all the work, for, not all the work, but it does so much of the work for you. Um, you don't have to imagine any of it. You don't have to try and put yourself into the space and the place, and you're actually there and. And you're actually standing, you know, with your feet on that stage or in that space or on that street. And um, it it really, really, it's almost like a cheat for an actor. It's, it's what you don't get in a play and what you do get in a really, really amazing film production is frequently you actually are literally transported to the space and place as the actor. And then you're trying to get the audience to go there with you. 
So, yeah, it, it helps immensely. It did in this particular situation, for sure. Yeah, because, I mean, prior to that, I'd seen you. Well, I saw you in Anywhere with you uh, on the Fest circuit earlier this year. And, of course, Rust Creek. Uh, Jen was on the show. I had Jen on the show also, and she and talking about the film and your character of Hollister, who was just amazing in Rust Creek. And you're on location. It, you get to, you know, you're, you can capture the whole ambient nature of the storytelling. But it's got to be different when you realize that, okay, it's not just a field. It's not just a trailer. It's, you know, here we are in these historical landmarks where you're standing on the street. And, yeah, somebody was really murdered right here. And we know this to be fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty. It's, it's a pretty unique experience. I mean, the whole film was so unique too because it was the you know the, the, the town was there. The town was shut down. I'm sure Devin told you all this mm-hmm. for several weeks for the film, and and everyone in the community obviously was very very supportive of Devin. And he had so many people come out and want to you know want to participate in the film and help. And but. It seemed like we were just transported back to the early 1900s mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks and just living in that space. And it was a pretty unique and amazing experience. And Devin is profoundly talented and insightful and giving and thoughtful. And all the things that make a wonderful person that also make an equally wonderful director. And uh, we're I'm, pretty lucky. You know, I'm curious, Micah, what did you, did you do any kind of research or reading on your own? To find out more about the kind of ca- character that this guy Cyrus Grimes would have been running this vaudeville show. So, so, so the answer to that question is typically for something like this, I would have I would have asked for and or wanted about two two to six weeks or two weeks minimum. Six weeks would be preferable to prep. Mm-hmm. But I came into it I think a night or two before they started shooting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so oh my I, God. I really had I had a phone call with Devin and the character Cyrus on the page was originally very very different than the way we reimagined it and I told him I said I said honestly I, I've never said this to a character I said I have no idea why you think I'm right for this character <laughs> and and he said what's on the page was an idea and he's like I you know he, I'd seen my work and whatever he, he, he said really nice things about it and and he said, I sit there like you can come and recreate and create something that's totally new and fresh and that's not on the page and we can do it together. And I'm like, that's great. I'm like, but I have like a day to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I told him, and, and it's, you know, it's a very specific time period. It's a really stylized piece. And mm-hmm. it's also a very specific, like he, he was the only person who wasn't from the South. He was somewhere from the, from the Southeastern side of the country at that time. And it's a very specific dialect as well. So I told them, and I mean, I was really excited that I said, we're going to have to figure this out together and just be super patient. And I will come with an idea and a dialect and, and an idea of what, where the characters should start. And we're going to have to sort of work it out on set. Um, so we did that. I, I worked with a dialect coach the morning I left. Oh God. In LA, who's was a really, really great coach. And to try to try and like get the specific regionalism and time down, um, and we, it wasn't even specific where it was from in the, in the south, southeastern part of the country. So, um, and then when I showed up, Devin and I talked, and 
the first day we sort of started working through it. And I think by the a couple of days in, we had sort of created the character together, which was a pretty crazy challenge, but a pretty awesome experience. And 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 that's another reason why the cast and Devin and the crew and the every, everyone involved was so so patient and so happy to be there and and was just really, really thoughtful and kind and, and, and all those situations and working through stuff on set can be difficult sometimes and everyone mm-hmm. was really, really game and really present for that. So you know, how mu- how much did that very uh, did that very, very cool costume, that jacket help inform your performance and your interpretation of Cyrus? I mean so much and the gla- and the glasses too and all of it. Um and the costumes uh, were all actually of the period, and I mean the co- the whole costume design was pretty amazing. But mine in particular, you, you know, you can only walk a certain way with that jacket. It's really, really heavy. It also drapes a certain way. You can only sort of stand a certain way, and it, it, in some ways, it just like when you put it on, it actually it, it's like the shell of the character on you, and it. And it informs how you feel and how you walk and how you move and how you can lift your arms and all that stuff without even thinking about that much. So it was immensely helpful. You know, and then you had the cool hat that went with it. Uh, (laughs) It's like I I just took one look at this and you won me over with just one look. Um, You know, I didn't know what to expect with the whole film, but then with this character... Be, and then you've got Brett Cullen's character, you know, as Dr. Perot, who, you know, he's in the tails and the, and the white bow tie and wearing the white gloves. And there's you. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I was... <laughs> of a whole different world. <laughs> you stood out so beautifully, but I'll tell you, you said you didn't know why, you know, why Devin would pick you on such short notice. He told me, because he did the show last week, and uh-huh. he said, it's because of your chameleonic abilities as an actor. Uh-huh. And I have to say, you know, I, I got to agree with him there, Micah. You truly are chameleonic. Uh, with your performances, I see you in something like a bag of hammers, or I see you in something like Anywhere with You, or or Parker, um, playing you know August Hardwick, you know working with Taylor Hackford. Um, we see you in the and then of course in Rust Creek, and of course how can we forget you with your little bit part in Iron Man? Um, <laughs> you are very chameleonic in the parts that you take and, and what you bring to them and what you bring to them over the years has just gotten deeper and stronger and more memorable. I will never, ever, till my dying day, forget you as Cyrus Grimes. I can, t- <laughs> I can tell you that right now. You know, what? what is it, uh, Micah, that attracts you to a particular role? I mean, part of uh, a very, very basic part of it is, op- is opportunity. And, and this is, I guess it's the part that we probably don't talk about as often. Um, and as you progress in your career, if you're lucky enough to progress, you have more opportunity and, and, and you have more choice, essentially. Um, 
And then after that, I would say it's 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 always wanting to try something I haven't done before. It's always wanting to explore new worlds, new places, new faces, new characters. Um, same way, in some ways, that I go about living my life and 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 trying to figure out a way into a character. I mean, I, morally compromising characters for me are actually pretty interesting to play because I also don't. I don't feel like, I think a lot of people feel like they have to find a redemptive uh, moment or a redemptive quality in a character. And not that everybody can't be redemptive, but some people in a certain moment in their life are just not redemptive. And for me, I'd rather shine a light exactly on who that person is as opposed to trying to find a way for an audience to like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always a big challenge. Um, and it's also rooted in filmmakers and and having a real connection to the material and really, really wanting to work with the group of actors that are cast, um, and especially the filmmakers who's helming it. So I think that's kind of how I usually decide. Well, you know, making all of your decisions, you know, you will now forever, for the rest of your life, uh, be a part of the MCU. And, you know, that, that I think you need to bump that up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I'm like the... I'm like the tiniest, teeniest part of the MCU. <laughs> but still, you're part of it. Yeah, yeah. You will forever get to say you were part of the most successful 10-year franchise. Um, around, <laughs> you know, now they just got, Feige's got to bring you back. Bring you back for the next phase. Um, but, <laughs> but right now, <laughs> well, you know, you can never have too many people showing up in the MCU. Um it's true. Now, it's true. You've got a new series too, Nova Vita. I yes, I don't know exactly what's happening with it. It was um it's sort of somewhere between like a it's like a sci fi sort of like mildly futuristic show in the world of like of a show like Billions, somewhere sort of like that. Mm-hmm. Um and we shot it last year, the second half of the year. Um and did all ten episodes with uh, with the same director and shot it all at once, which was a pretty amazing experience. So it was shot as like one massively large feature film, which a lot of uh, streaming services are doing these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was independently financed, so I think they're now looking to have it set up somewhere and to find a, 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 a streaming service or yeah. sort of distribution outlet for it. Oh, well, seeing you in something with a sci-fi bent, I can't wait for that. Yeah, it was it was an it was a really really great creative experience working on that project. Uh, actors and the director were pretty extraordinary. So, well, unfortunately, Micah, I have to let you go because your partner in crime from the Riot Act is on the other line. <laughs> Brett is. You got Brett. I got Brett. <laughs> but this is <laughs> Brett. Brett's probably waiting, being like, "Why is why are they not picking up yet?" <laughs> Because Micah's yeah, on. <laughs> oh, Micah, <laughs> this is such a joy to have you on. I, we cannot wait four years to have you back on the show again. <laughs> definitely, definitely not. Oh, Micah, thank you so, so much. And I'll talk to you again soon. Likewise. So great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Take care. And that was Micah Halpman talking the Riot Act. And now... I am beyond thrilled to have the fabulous Brett Cullen joining us. Welcome, Brett. 
Hi, Debbie. How are you? Well, I am beyond beyond happy to be talking to you, Brett. I've been I've waited thirty nine years to get a chance to talk to you. Oh Lord, that's a long time. In all the in my in my thirty two years as a critic, as my years doing production, never got a chance to work on anything you were on. Never got a chance to interview you. So I am I am so thrilled, especially today of all days after. One of the most bombastic weekends in movie history. You're a part of it. <laughs> Joker, 234 million global. Come on. Biggest o- October. Yeah, nice biggest October opening ever. And you're a part yeah. of it. Did well, you- I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it. I love the film. And uh, I, it really, it was an amazing project to be involved with and obviously working with Todd and Joaquin is really thrilling. Well, you know, and this is like just a progression for you because you were in the Dark Knight Rises. You're already part of mm-hmm. this world. <laughs> so Yeah, the DC world, yeah. So I mean this uh, you know, and Micah was just on Micah was laughing because he said, yeah, Brett's probably wondering how come you're not picking up the phone and it's because you're on the phone with me. Uh <laughs> I love Micah. He's a great guy. Oh, my God. He's hilarious. I mean, he's we... so good in the riot act. Oh, so fantastic. Well, that character of Cyrus and that outfit that he wears, the jacket and the hat and the glasses, that just, I told him, I will, I, that is ingrained on my mind. I will never forget that look. Um, yeah, it's, it, it felt like almost like it was uh, Elizabethan. Yeah. Which is yeah. kind of fit for performers of of that ilk in the vaudevillian days oh, back in the early 1900s. So I think that was uh, the costume designer did a, a great job with that. But they also yeah, did. Yeah, and I, I'm going blank on her name right now, but she's fascinating because she had never done a film before. There's a lot of theater, and she lives in that period in terms of her and her kids wear those clothes daily. Wow. And she makes them. Wow. And I, I, I had come off of, I'd been doing like four projects. And I, my agent was like, you got to go. You got you to gotta read the script. And I'm like, I'm so tired. I really just can't. And she was like, you're going to read the script and you're going to do this movie. So I read it. And then I talked to Devin and uh, finally said, okay, let's, let's jump in with both feet. So that's what happened. I mean, when I showed up, it took me a couple of days to realize I was in Arkansas. But yeah. It was uh, an amazing experience and a really kind of cool, creative experience to be involved with. Yeah, I mean, I love the fact, and I, I think this may be the first time you've ever really done a, something that is actually based upon a historical event, well, other than 42. Um, yes. But Well, yeah, Apollo 13, that, well, was, that was a start. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Um, but no, it was, um, an interesting process. And, 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 you know, I, Devin and I laugh about this because there was two scenes we were doing, uh, where I was, I really felt differently than what he wanted me to do. I was like, I I don't think that works. And we kind of went back and forth and finally I said, all right, I'll do it. But I, I'm just on record saying, I disagree with how we're going forward with this. And, um, and it was actually the scene in the theater where I'm tied up. Mm-hmm. You know, the end, the Donamont. Yep. And uh, <laughs> then I saw the movie and I walked up to him and I said, okay, you were right. 
I mean, he, he, he's such a great director and a great guy. And, uh, his, I mean, everybody, in LA, everybody who worked on that, his family and the city we shot in, they were so fantastic. I mean, they just opened up, opened their arms to us. You know, what does it do for you as an actor when here you are, this is based on historical truth, court records, you know, testimony, and of course then Devin takes it off in a what-if scenario, but here you are standing on the actual street where your, where a murder was committed that your character is directly yeah. tied to. Uh, that has to be either so intimidating or so empowering or a combination of both. The wonderful thing about working in that in, in that town and being on that street and being in the opera house was the way they kind of created the the atmosphere creatively for all of us was you literally would put your clothes on and you walk out onto the street and you felt like you were in, you know, turn of the century. Mm-hmm. There was no kind of thing that would bring you out. Occasionally you'd see a car, you know, but they didn't have cars on the street. So that was an easy thing to flip into because you just fell into it. You felt like you were part of it. And the way the clothes, the way we were wardrobe made you walk a certain way. And it just, all the, the visceral aspects of the creative team just put it into a place where you just kind of became who you were. And obviously the historical aspects of it I looked into and heard, had great discussions with Devin about. But it was, uh, to me, it's more about a story about a father and a daughter. Mm-hmm. You know, that what happens when a parent makes the wrong choice and then how that affects his personality and how he treats everyone else around him. Mm-hmm. I, your, your take... And then obviously the opium... <laughs> well, you know, yeah, that might have a yeah, little, a little something to do with it, you know. <laughs> well, that's how you know. I mean, most people who have drug addiction problems are suffering from something else. And yeah, something else happened in their life that caused them, or they just have the gene that's there. I don't think the doctor did. I think it was more about covering the pain and the loss that he felt and the mistake that he had made. Mm-hmm. You know, I, your performance as Dr. Perot, it's a very pensive performance. And I've got to say, um, Travis Joyner, the cinematographer, does an amazing job with a lot, with some close-ups of you and some of your most uh, re- contemplative and pensive, and pensive moments, moments of regret, fear, really captures an intensity that you bring to the role. And... It just is so compelling watching you in this character because then you also turn on a dime. But the whole time, you maintain your upper crust social status. And I found well, it so interesting th- watching you. you. It's, a, it, it's a weird kind of... That was one of the things I struggled with a little bit when I first got there was what's going on emotionally with him. And to be that powerful of a man but also to feel the fear and the anxiety and, and I guess the doubt of whether what's real is real and what's not is not, and what is he experiencing. And to me, that was probably the most challenging part for me. But I want to say one thing, Travis, I mean, I worked with Sven Nyquist, you know, Bergman's DP, mm-hmm. and this guy could stand right next to him. He's an, I mean, my wife saw the trailer and went, who shot this movie? It's amazing. Yeah. And I went, I know. 
this guy was amazing, and he's a local in Arkansas. No. So I just, I just thought the world of him. Oh, I mean, the film is beautiful, and it it belies being being an in being a low budget, no budget indie, as I like to refer to them. Um, this really right. looks like a multi million dollar film on every level. Yeah, but this, yeah, it does. They, and, they, I mean, with Devin and with Travis and with the rest of the production team, what they did and our wardrobe designer, it just was astounding what they accomplished. And I was really, truly impressed and happy. As I said to Devin, I said, let's do it again. Yeah. I'll tell the work with you again. <laughs> I mean, this, uh, this collaboration, the result is just amazing. I mean, even down to Kevin Croxton's scoring is just, it's beautiful. Yeah, everything about it, in my mind, it just kind of rolled into one beautiful experience. And, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, I had talked to Devin on the phone because I was in upstate New York doing a series, and um, I was exhausted because it was Shakespearean. I mean, it was like I had six, seven-page monologues in this oh, thing, God. and they're still, it, it was privately financed. I haven't sold yet. But I was there, and I, I can't, and I, as I said, I was really tired. Mm-hmm. And I showed up, um, I remember I got my trailer and was just standing there going, where am I? How did I get here? <laughs> and there was a knock on the door and there were all these young students that they used as PAs that are in, you know, like communications departments or theater mm-hmm. departments in the local area. And so these young kids knocked on the door and I opened it and there was this other young kid standing there and he's looking at me and he goes, hey. I go, hi, who are you? Are you, you a PA? He said, no, I'm the director. <laughs> And I was like, holy shit, I won't say it on the radio. But I was like, God, well, okay, well, let's talk. That's how it started. Wow. You know, I'm curious, Brett, what do you, because of, you have such an eclectic resume um, with everything from one of my all-time favorite characters, Eddie Martell in The Replacements. Um, Oh, yeah. I hold hold that character so dear. I loved your performance in that film. To you know, oh, well, thank you so much. You know your work in going all the way back to Falcon Crest and the Young Riders, um, and even seeing you pop up as, as you know, as a dad to Blake Lively's character in The Shallows, yeah. or Narcos, West Wing. It this is completely an eclectic resume, big budget studio films like The Dark Knight Rises, and of course now Joker. You know, and then little little gems like this. What is it that speaks to you when a script comes your way? What is it you look for before you say yes to something? Well, there's several, I guess, several sort of criteria that are met. One is, can I pay my mortgage? That, okay, <laughs> that's a good is one. Is there any money that I, you know, because this is a business, and I have to, you know, I have a daughter and a wife and a beautiful house, and I live in Venice, California, and I got to, you know, People assume all actors are just rich, and we're not. We make a living, and that's what I've always sort of been as a journeyman actor. And, but when it comes down to something like this, this particular project, um, you know, you look at whether you want to play the role, whether, you know, you can afford to do it if there's no money, and two, if, you know, the creative team is someone you want to work with. And then you go to the script, which is obviously the first thing you look at. Mm-hmm. Now, I had, I was so tired, and my agent was saying, "I want you to do this. I really want." And I said, "Why?" She goes, "It's a little bit out of your wheelhouse," and I'd like, and I, which I like doing, uh, which is probably why I have the resume that I have. Mm-hmm. But um, 
in this particular project, it was a situation where I read it and I said, why do you want me to do this? Because you've never done anything really like this. And I think you should. And I really love the casting director. And I just think you should, you know, jump on. And so I read it and I loved it. And I said, let me have a conversation with the director. And I did. And um, I was on board. Wow. And I, you know, I mean, Brandon Keener, who I worked with, and Micah, and Lauren, and Connor, and, you know, the whole cast. But, you know, Brandon's wife is a casting director, and she's a big casting director out here in Los Angeles. And my agent really respects her and said, I respect her taste, and I think this is going to be a good movie. So that had a whole lot of play in it as well. And boy, oh boy, were they all right? Because it is a mm-hmm. really good movie. Well, thank you so much. I, I, I'm really proud of it, and um, I, I'm, I'm just thrilled you love it. I, I just, it truly, from every level of the production to the performances, and I have to say, your chemistry with Lauren Sweetser, who plays Dr. Perot's daughter of Allie, that is, I mean, mm-hmm. that is so true to life as a father-daughter at odds with each other. Yeah, well, I have a daughter, <laughs> <laughs> and I know that relationship. And you, you, you go through those phases in, in your life with a child where we're really close, and then like through the high school years, she and I really butted heads a lot. My wife was sort of her defender, <laughs> and now we're really close again. And it's, uh, you know, I never had anything like, obviously, shooting a man. No, it's true. Who my daughter was in love with. But I understand the relationship. And, uh, you know, I, like it's, it's an interesting story. When I was young and was coming out of the University of Houston, my mentor, Cecil Pickett, looked at me one day and he goes, you know, Brett, when you're in your 40s, you won't have to work so much. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be successful? And he went, no, I mean, you'll have life experience. And as an actor, you know, it's when you're 24, trying to remember, you know, do some really heavy emotional scene, you kind of dig up stuff, and you don't have the experience that you do when you're 40 or 50 because you'll maybe lost a parent or a sibling or a child, for that matter, and you've been married. You've had the joys of, of growing up in, in the world you live in. So you can pull on that creatively, and um, that, to me, is, is I mean, I, I love my daughter more than my own life, and same way I felt about Lauren, you know, as a character, it's like, I can't believe I've lost my child. Mm-hmm. And, of course, lied about it, saying she was dead. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the two of you together, you know, there's some actors, okay, they play opposite each other. But as you know, okay, the chemistry just fails. It's not there. It's not resonant, not believable. But there is never a minute with the two of you on screen that you do not believe that you are father and daughter. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. But I, I, I give credit to Lauren because she's such a fantastic actress. You know, I'm, I'm curious. And what's fun was because, you know, after we did the movie, I, I was in Arkansas doing True Detective, and she called me or texted me and said, hey, I'm going to be in True Detective. And I was like, you are? Who are you playing? And she goes, I don't know. They won't let me read the script. <laughs> <laughs> but she ended up playing a very iconic role. Um in the in the mini in the mini series, I guess it's called, or the limited series. Yeah, and she's just so talented, and she, I just I just adore her, and she's also smart enough to be able to produce this movie with Kevin. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious because so, of... I mean, I have lots of love 
lots of love for almost everybody that worked on this. I mean, the makeup and hair people still text me all the time. <laughs> well, we were a family. Look, you you looked mighty fine in this film, Brett. Mighty fine. So well, thank you very much. At my age, that's a compliment. And in the and in the tux in the tuxedo, the tails with the white bow tie and the gloves. Oh yeah, very fine. <laughs> You know, you, I, just, I just needed a cane. You know, you hearken to you know the gold, the golden age of Hollywood. You know, I mean, you take a look at a Cary Grant or a Clark Gable and how they would go to awards affairs and things, and that's how they would look. So yeah, no, you, that was the old days. That was when class meant something. Yes, yes. You know, I'm curious, Brett, because of the fact you you have now been in this business for a number of decades and you've seen it change. You know, when you started out and you were doing Falcon Crest or, or the Chisholms, um, that's when things were VHS was around and yeah. we still had very limited television channels. Cable was still in its very, very infancy. Um, and now we have all these streaming platforms and a multiplicity of cable channels. Cable programming has been dominating um, award shows and uh, on yeah. both the big and small screen. So I'm curious, has this impacted your career at all? Does it give you more opportunities or, or it, or does it preclude you from things because of the tenor that some of them no, take? No, it, it creates more opportunities for you. The difference is, I mean, I'm going to go inside. There's planes flying over my head. <laughs> um, it's hard to hear. I got the Santa Monica airport near my house. Um, the thing that's different about, there's more opportunities. As a young actor today, if I was my daughter's age, and she's an incredible actor, what she has to deal with this is what I had to deal with, with entirely different animals. Mm-hmm. What's going on right now is, I'll give you an example. Let's say the, I, I did West Wing. Mm-hmm. And then you get paid a certain amount of money. And generally that, was, that used to be rerun in the summer. Right. right? And you'd get, a, you'd get half your paycheck, basically, for the first rerun. And then the next time it's rerun, you get a, half of that. Then you also have your foreign sales. So let's say just get in a number. If you're making ten thousand dollars doing a guest shot, you're going to make fifteen probably, and then the foreign sales will bring in another chunk of change. So you end up making about twenty grand. Mm-hmm. In streaming, when you get hired and they say, "Okay, we're going to pay you this much money," that's it. <laughs> there, you know, it's sort of a buyout. The yeah. only thing you do get money from is from rentals. Mm-hmm. But um, like I got, I got a check the other day from uh, Narcos. And I was shocked. I was like, I thought there weren't residuals. And they said, no, you get, it's from Ripples. So you still get that. But it's, it's a changed financial dynamic with mm-hmm. all of these companies. And honestly, I think it's great. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with it because I think that the opportunity and the quality of work that's being done in the streaming areas is hurting the network somewhat. Because they can be as clear and as honest and as straightforward as they want to be in telling a story, as opposed to worrying about, you know, you can't say this word, you can't do that, you can't do this. Right. Um, so I, I find it exhilarating. Mm-hmm. Do you th- do you think that? But, but other than that, I don't. It's just there's jobs. You know, you want jobs. You want to work and you want to practice your craft and get paid for it. That's the whole goal. 
Do you have a preference between doing television or film? Or is it all kind no. of the same? Well, I mean, the nice thing about, like, for instance, a big movie like The Joker is, you know, the amount of money you, you quoted it made worldwide. I mean, that that does sort of roll into your residuals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my wife, who's also an amazing actress, um, we were in Apollo 13, and I think that made 300 and something million, mm-hmm. you know, nationwide. And the residual checks we had were phenomenal. I mean, we probably made four times more on residuals than we did on our actual salary. Yeah. And so that's a lovely thing to have. That's why you like doing movies. Television, like I'm doing The Blacklist right now. I'm doing five episodes for them, and I did the finale last season. And those that will, you know, I'll get residuals on that, and I'll also get foreign sales on that, you know, and they turn that around and sell it into syndication. You get some money. So... You know, that's how you kind of gauge stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What is that noise? There's a beeping going on in my house. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Who set <laughs> I'm off having the... all these noises around me while I'm on the radio. <laughs> Who set off the fire alarm? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got to quit smoking those cigars. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I think it's a, an exciting time. I think it's also got to be worked out somewhat with our union. And, and I think I think Netflix just made a deal with SAG. So. Mm-hmm. You know, they just have to make sure that they take care of people so that we can have a living wage and we can make, make a, a career out of being an artist. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one, of the, one of the things that I worry about with established actors, with a lot of the streaming stuff and, and people going to YouTube channels and making YouTube series and things like that, is that, number one, right. 99% of them are not making any kind of wage, um, and it's right. not really getting them to the next level. And that's something that you didn't well, I, you didn't have to worry about when you started. We didn't have YouTube. <laughs> no, I mean I I got I was lucky. I got the Chisholm's three weeks after I moved to Los Angeles, and um, that was like phenomenal for me. And and then I went through a rough stretch and started doing commercials, and then I got the phone books. And you know I, I you know it's interesting. I always tell people I've been rich six times and poor seven. Um, because you go through phases where you make a lot of money and other times where you don't. And I always, you know, because I teach as well and I tell artists that I work with, listen, the, the career is like, you know, mountains, mountains and, and valleys. Try and live in the middle. Don't live at the top of the mountain and don't live in the valley, but try and live in the middle. Live, you know, be smart with your money and try and maintain a, the ability to survive financially in rough times. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. I mean, that's okay. That's kind of the same advice that my father always gave me. It's you know, budget yourself. Make sure you have enough money. At least one quarter of, of what you make a month has to go to your rent. Figure out how much money you got left for food and your bills, and then if you have to, you've got to adjust from there. But always plan. Yeah. Plan for those va- for those very low, low, low valleys. Uh, no, I'm always, I'm just, I'm kind of, I say, take 25% for your taxes. You know, your agents and managers take their money, and then you take whatever whatever it is you have to survive on, you keep the rest you save. Mm-hmm. And don't go buy the Porsche. Keep the Toyota. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, I could ask. I don't know why anyone would want to buy a Porsche or a Maserati anyway in Los Angeles. You can't drive very fast. There's so much traffic. <clears throat> 
actually, I think... I live, in Venice, I live in Venice Beach, and I'm never here. I mean, I, I, the thing is great. My wife is frustrated because I come home and she goes, what do you want to do? And I say, I want to stay home. She's like, come on in. I'm like, Cause all I've been doing is traveling. Traveling and working. And so being able to be in my own space, in my own home, is such a joy. And uh, I, I just did a pilot for HBO that if it goes, it'll shoot in Los Angeles. And that'll be... Probably the second time in the last 10 years I've been able to work in L.A. for an extended period of time. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, Brett, one, one last question before I let you go. You are such a, such a joy to talk to. I love this. Um, I've got to ask you, what is the greatest gift that being an actor has given you? After all these decades, you know, what is the greatest gift that it has given you? Well... I think probably the ability to be able to do what I love to do and to be able to pay my bills. And I mean, there's so I mean, my manager and different people I know that represent actors say, you know, I have actors your age. They can't, they, they've had one audition all year yeah. and you just keep booking stuff. And I'm really fortunate in that way. And I heard this great story about, um, I think I'm going, is it Peter, um, Dinkle? I can't say his name. The guy that's in Game of Thrones. Yeah, Peter Dinklage. Yeah, Dinklage. He said, someone said, God, you're so lucky. And he said, well, if I'm lucky, then what about all those years I stayed in that crappy crappy apartment in Burbank and struggling and having to read for these characters I didn't want to play? And You know, so I don't believe in luck. I believe in fortune, like being fortunate. So I've been really fortunate, and I think the gift of... One of the things that I do do that I believe in strongly is when you do have a certain amount of success or when you do have a certain amount of knowledge, share it. Give back, because that's what I try and do. I mean, I teach, but I I hardly charge my students anything. I go back to the University of Houston, alma mater. I'm now, I've created a program to bring guest artists there. So we can share, and then most of them are friends of mine or people I've worked with, so that we can share the knowledge we have and what we've gained with students who are, like, chomping at the bit trying to figure out mm-hmm. what happens when I leave here. Yeah. You know, what is the real world like? So that's, that's kind of, that's probably the biggest gift is my ability to be able to go and help other people and teach and to explain to them, you know, there's a thousand guys leaving for this role, and you better work harder and do everything you can, and it still doesn't mean you're going to get the part, but at least you'll be more prepared than everyone else. And, and they'll remember that. And they'll gain more experience and know what to do or not do next time. Yeah, well, auditions, I still audition, and I like auditions. Most actors hate them because, to me, it's the ability or the opportunity for me to stretch my artistic muscles. And then I tell my students, I don't really audition. And they say, well, you don't have to. And I said, yes, I do. They said, well, what do you mean? I said, I don't audition. I go in and perform the way I'd like to play the role. And, you know, pretty much, I'm, you know, if I was a baseball player, I'm batting five, six hundred. You know, I do look pretty well in that because I really enjoy auditioning. Well, here's to you to keep knocking it out of the park, Brett. Well, thank you so much. It's a, an interesting time right now. Uh, well, this has been an absolute joy and privilege to get to talk to you. Um, and everybody needs well, everybody. It's been my honor as well. So let's do it again sometime when we have something else to talk about. Oh, you've got enough stuff going on, so I'm sure we will. And I'll keep my fingers crossed yeah, for that HBO. 
I'm doing this fight with Adam McKay about, it's called Showtime, or I don't know what the title's going to be, but it's about the Showtime when the Lakers drafted Magic Johnson. Oh. This is John C. Riley and me and Jason Clark. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That sounds like a blast. Yeah, no, I just finished it, and I have to go back. I'm waiting to find out from New York when I have to fly back for the blacklist, and it's going to be sometime this week. Oh, which is why I couldn't talk to you last Monday, and Devin did, because I was on location. Oh, and, so, and uh, that was absolutely there. fine. I get it. I get an email from, from Annie, and she's like, okay, Brett's shooting, but Devin's going to do I said, okay, fine. You know, whatever works for Brett. You know? <laughs> well, Devin, that's a great conversation. That guy is so smart. I just, I just yeah. enjoy him. I, I really do. Him and his wife are just the best, and... I just decided to get her hired as a production designer on some other movies. Um, I just, I'm just big fans of theirs, and like I said, they're young and they're smart and they're very intelligent and they're very creative, and I'd love to work with them again. Oh, I and given what we see with the Riot Act, I want to see this collaboration between the two of you again. I really do. Yeah, no, I'd look forward to it. <laughs> I'd love to do that. Oh, Brett, thank you so so much, and we will talk again soon. Okay, well, you take care and have a nice Monday, and I'm going to try and find out when I have to go to New York. Terrific. (laughs) Thanks, Brett. (laughs) Bye-bye. All right, take care. Adios. And that was Brett Cullen. Off my bucket list. I have, for all these years, never got to work with him on any sets, any productions, never got to interview him until now. So... All good things do come to those who wait. See him, see Micah in the Riot Act. Um, It's fabulous. A fabulous, fabulous film. Uh, And go see the Joker. Add to its coffers. Uh, We will pick up more of Lucy in the Sky next week along with some other fun stuff. And, oh yeah, we actually have Nancy Good, director Nancy Goodman next week talking about her film, Surprise Me, which is generally what half of Behind the Lens is every week anyway. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 